Hi, my name is Andre, and you're listening to Code Podcast. This is a bonus episode. It is a full, unabridged interview with Steve Klubnik. We have recorded this interview back in January 2016. We are talking about concurrency and Rust, the programming language. Some things have changed since then. A lot of stuff hasn't changed. And that's, I guess, is a good part about talking about generic concepts in programming. It's not like we invent a new paradigm to deal with concurrent execution every year. There are a couple of reasons why I'm releasing this interview. First is, of course, Steve is a great speaker and I've enjoyed our conversation a lot and I've learned a lot. Second reason is Steve, together with Carol Nichols, just released a book that is called The Rust Programming Language. So if you're here and you're listening to the podcast, you probably like learning about complex concepts and you're interested in programming languages. So I definitely recommend getting the book. We'll leave the link in the show notes. And if you find this podcast valuable, please consider supporting us on Patreon by going to codepodcast.com slash Patreon. You will only be charged per actual episode. You won't be charged for bonus episodes like this one, for example. Your contributions help a lot. Thank you so much. Okay, so if you could introduce yourself and uh, tell what, what do you do? Yeah. Hi, everybody. I'm Steve. Um, I'm currently employed by Mozilla to work on Rust documentation full-time. Um, I've been a long-time contributor to the open source space. I decided relatively early on in my career that open source was what I wanted to do, and so I took jobs that let me do that. So before working on Rust, I was involved in the Ruby on Rails community relatively heavily. Uh, I had commit to Ruby on Rails at one point. And, uh, you know, d- d- work on a lot of Ruby gems. Um, I'm still maintaining one of those, uh, ba- Rescue, which is a background job concurrency project that was originally written by one of GitHub's founders back in the day. Um, but now I'm mostly doing Rust, um, <coughs> and I'm uh, loving it. It's my favorite. <laughs> I actually worked on Rust as an open source project before I got the job working on it as well. So mm. it's just kind of been a th- consistent theme of me is like, work on an open source project and then eventually want to do it all the time. And so figure out some way to get paid to do it. <laughs> That's an awesome way to leave. Yeah. I'm very lucky. Uh, one of your projects that I find very interesting is Intermezzos. Yeah. Am I so, spelling it correctly? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So uh, it's, uh, this is my newest project. And so I haven't been publishing it a whole ton, but a little bit. Basically, Um, so one of the things that Rust is for me is a return to low level programming. So when I started programming, C was the second language I learned actually. And then when I found Ruby, I was like, okay, I don't want to have to worry about all this junk anymore. Like garbage collectors are amazing. And like, I love how flexible this language is and types are too much typing, you know, and I enjoyed the dynamic aspect. So I kind of left the, the low level programming space for a long time. Um, and so now Rust being a low level programming language like C, uh, is sort of a return to these concepts. And so um, I have always been interested in operating systems development, and a lot of my friends in college are PhD candidates for operating system stuff, and we were building a toy operating system ourselves uh, in the D programming language at the time. And so now that I'm in, back into low-level stuff again, I was like, I should start writing another little OS. 
And that's when I remembered that one of the things that made it so hard previously was that the tutorials and explanations for OS dev are, um, there's sort of this mentality that like, it's very difficult and you have to suffer through it. And then you're like a quote unquote real programmer because you've memorized all this boring esoteric stuff. Um, and so what I wanted to do was create an operating system tutorial that instead, uh, didn't look down on the reader as stupid and explain things that other tutorials would assume you would take for granted. So for example, uh, this project does not assume that you know assembly language before you start reading the tutorial. Actually, like explain assembly language and how to use it as part of the tutorial. So sort of the idea of Intermezos is I have only written JavaScript before. How do I get started in OS development um, with Rust? So it's 100% assembly and Rust code. Uh, and that's sort of the idea is to sort of build a community around people who are interested in learning about operating system development. I think it's great. And I will also, I think, be one of the people who will try it. But uh, did you get some feedback already? A little bit. And I, there's a small little nanescent community of uh, five or six people that have been helping out a lot. Um, one of the issues is that, so I, I wrote the code, sort of where the kernel is at right now is it can boot up it can print stuff to the screen. It can get keyboard input and then like echo those characters back out to the screen. So at that point, I said, okay, now I want to start writing this tutorial. So I have code that's farther along than the tutorial is. And now I'm working on the tutorial. So it's kind of ready for people who are also interested in helping me write the tutorial. But once it's like sort of finished, that's when I'll be really saying like, okay, now it's time for people to check this out for real. So at the moment, it's like, do you want to help me write this? <laughs> and in the future, it'll just hopefully be a thing. Um, okay, cool. Do do you need people to help you to write the tutorial or also the the code itself? I am always interested in both of those things. Mm -hmm. So if you're interested in just developing code and not working on the tutorial, I need, you know, eventually this is going to be a full-fledged, although small, operating system. So there's a lot of code work that needs to be done. Uh, and if you're interested in taking the code other people have written and writing tutorial stuff for it, that would also be very helpful. So yeah. Anyone that's interested, I would love to have your contributions um, for sure. Cool. Uh, let's move to, to the concurrency question. Uh, what do you think the problem is of concurrency? Like, what is concurrency? Why do we need it? And what are the basic problems in programs that use concurrency? Yeah. So there's sort of two related concepts here that are different from each other. One is concurrency and one is parallelism. I don't think that in the context of like this podcast, it's super important to be completely rigorous about like the exact differences between these two things. Um, but basically the idea is that, you know, computers, uh, now have multiple cores in them. And so we're actually able to run programs simultaneously and also have, you know, one program spin up, uh, threads of execution that run simultaneously. And this creates a large amount of problems. Sort of the fundamental problem with concurrency and parallelism to me is that it does not map to our mental model of how programming works. So like when you think about programming, you think about, okay, these sequence of steps is going to be executed in this order. And so when you reason about your code, you don't assume that, oh, hey, uh, between line two and line three, this program could stop, another thread could run, change everything about the universe, and then I have to start over again. Um, and so this, this, mismap is like the really, really important thing, um, at least to me in terms of why concurrency and parallelism are difficult. Um, and so there's some strategies that we've come up with to help mitigate this kind of problem. 
Um, but that's sort of the, that's the core of it to me is that like, it does not map our mental model and therefore it is very hard and bug, bug prone when you're trying to write concurrency code. Um, at Mozilla, there's, there's sort of this hierarchy of programmers. I don't really pay attention to this stuff, but there's like titles, you know, like junior engineer, senior engineer, whatever. And there's the highest title is something like distinguished engineer. And there's only four people or something that have ever achieved, achieved that level, um, at Mozilla. And one of the distinguished engineers has this post-it note next to his cubicle, and it's about 10 feet off the ground, so much taller than any person could ever be. And it says on the post-it note, you must be this tall to write concurrent code. (laughs) Um, And so, you know, even incredibly experienced programmers that are very careful and know about this topic can still, you know, bugs still happen, right? Humans are not perfect. Um, and concurrency kind of exacerbates the situation where, you know, you might be writing buggy code before, but it could be really buggy. And then the other thing that makes concurrency bugs especially pernicious is that in order to reproduce them, you, you need the program to execute out of order in the same way that causes the problem, right? So like if these two programs can run in the same time and they work 99.99% of the time, but it fails 1% of the time, you now have like a hundred combinations of interleavings to produce the exact circumstances under which the bug happens. So not only are they easy to write, they're very, very hard to debug. And that combination is what makes it like so such a big problem. Um, and the way the hardware is going, we're increasingly reaching towards parallelism and concurrency in, as a means of making our programs faster. You know, we're sort of running up against some physical limits with making individual processors faster. So now hardware vendors are just releasing more processors, which makes sense. But now we have to deal with uh, coping with this as programmers. One of my friends says that uh, some of the most, uh, some of the simplest problems in non-concurrency world, like counters, can be such a great pain in the ass in, in a concurrency program. Definitely. You have an, an excellent talk which is called Concurrency in Rust. Mm-hmm. And there you're talking about shared mutable state and how this is basically the root of all evil uh, yeah. in concurrent pro- programs. Can you so, elaborate? Yeah. So like I mentioned earlier, there's a couple different strategies that people have done or came up with to fight this problem. And so one very common, well-known sort of slogan is that uh, shared mutable state is the root of all evil. So the reason that shared mutable state is a problem is that, as I described to you before, if you have a piece of code that relies on a certain value being valid, but another thread can make that value invalid, you would assume, like, if I say, uh, you know, A is equal to 5, and then I say printf A, uh, I expect to see 5. But if another thread comes along and it modifies A in some fashion, we could get any value that we want. And so when you're looking at those two lines of code, it seems like it should always print five, but that might not actually be true. And this is due to these two properties. So the first one is that it has to be shared. So if A cannot be accessed from another thread, then you're good because you know that it's not going to get changed in some way. And the second one is that it can be changed at all. So if it could be accessed by another thread, but it's not able to be changed, then it still will also always print five because you can't actually modify it. So you need both of these things to be true at the same time. It has to be accessible from multiple threads and it has to be able to be changed. And that's what like causes a lot of the bugs uh, and a lot of problems. And so uh, eliminating that is a, is a good first step towards writing correct concurrent and parallel code. That's what Trust type system does. 
Yeah. So historically speaking, uh, most people focus on the mutable part of that equation. So like we've, we've often said, oh, well, you know, we'll just make sure that this variable cannot be mutated and that will not be a problem. And so there's a huge amount of research being done on this in the functional communities that's also making its way into JavaScript as well. So people talk a lot about immutable data structures and persistent data structures and um, how do we make stuff immutable in order to solve these problems. And that's definitely like a good path forward. Um, I think it's very valid. However, Rust takes a slightly different approach. And this is something that is very unique to it as a language. And so um, that's sort of the, the interesting part. So Rust deals with this problem by, I wouldn't say ignoring the mutable part. Um, Rust actually is immutable by default. Uh, and we do care a lot about the distinction between mutability and immutability. But we really, really pay attention to the shared aspect. And so Rust's type system um, has some features in it that have allowed us to build a standard library where you can know if your code is safe to share across threads or not, and if it's safe to be read by another thread or not. And the type system will, at compile time, make sure that your code follows these rules. And so by controlling the shared aspect really strongly, Rust can help prevent the same kinds of errors. But it's a very different style than the everything is immutable style of dealing with concurrency problems. Um, and that doesn't mean that Rust does not, cannot also do those things either. It just means that like a lot of people uh, reach to immutability first because they're used to the constraints that other languages give them. But I would say that a lot of Rust programmers do not reach for immutability first. They still might do it for various reasons, but it's not inherently like automatically the uh, first thing you do. And why is that? Because the, when the language has such like the mutable state model maps more closely to the way that we think about programming. Like we think about variables as being able to, you know, vary. That's why they're called variables, right? So they can change. And so the idea that you never change anything, you just make tons of new things is not like the way that the world works. So, you know, if I want to take my bike and change it from being red to being black, I don't summon a new black bike out of the universe and then throw my red bike away, I paint it, right? right? And so I think that the mutation model more closely aligns with the way that programmers think about these things. So by making mutations safe, I think it's a little easier for people to write code that is in a shared mutable style uh, more than a, well, you know, controlled mutable. That's, that's part of the key, right? Um, mm. Is controlling the mutation. But thinking about it as mutation tends to be more natural for most people, I would think. And it's probably more performant. Yeah, I, it depends. So another interesting thing is that a lot of this immutable data structure stuff relies very heavily on a garbage collector, um, mm. and specifically Haskell. Uh, Haskell, because it, a lot of things are immutable, uh, it generates a lot of garbage making these new things. But the, the GC is tuned for this use case, so it will like allocate, but then also collect a vast amount of garbage in a short amount of time. And so it's not necessarily as big of a problem, but Rust does not have a garbage collector. And so we can't rely on that kind of technique to solve that problem. And so for us, a similar implementation would be significantly less performant. Yeah. Um, and I think that overall shared mutable concurrency is probably more performant. Uh, but again, Sometimes things are surprising and there's a lot of interesting research being done in the immutable space. Um, and so sometimes it can be very fast. Just, it just depends. Unfortunately, there's no, not always a straightforward answer, right? It always depends. Right. That's true. Uh, so 
if we are talking about examples, how would you, for example, read two files in two separate threads in Rust and then combine their resu- result? Yeah. What would be the typical approach? So um, the, the sort of the way that this would work at a kind of a high level is that you uh, have a file handle and it has, uh, Rust talks about this idea of ownership So we know which variable is sort of in charge of making sure that the file needs to be closed and that the file handle needs to go away and all that stuff eventually. So you can only have one owner at a time. So what ended up happening is is that you would create uh, this file and then you would give the two separate threads um, access to it. But because reading from the file ends up modifying the you know pointer, the internal pointer of where you're reading at in the file. Uh, the Rust type system by default will sort of not let you do that. It will only let you immutably access the file because it is, uh, you know, shared between two different threads. So we can solve this by using various different library types. The first one I would reach for is a mutex, which is a pretty classic, uh, data structure. And so this is, this is a very common way to accomplish this in a lot of languages. The, the secret sauce or the reason why Rust is better at this than other languages is sort of twofold. Um, first of all, the type system guarantees that you have to have a mutex in order to do this. So in other languages, like a mutex is a very valid strategy, but you can also do the invalid strategy. Rust only lets you do the valid strategy. So that's one big improvement. Um, the second improvement is that Rust keeps track of how long variables live across these scopes. So like when your variable goes into and out of scope, it understands what those are. And so... Um, Rust has a lot of open things, but not a lot of closed things. What I mean by that is you can sort of ask the mutex, hey, I would please like to have access to this thing, lock the mutex and give me a reference to it. And that's the same as in any language. But the difference is, is that you do not need to explicitly call close on the mutex. Once the thing that you're using that has acquired the lock goes out of scope, the mutex is released automatically. And so what this means is, is that you can't get the kind of bug where you do take out a mutex but then you close it a little too early and then you still use it afterwards. Like the type system guarantees that the only time you can actually modify the variable is while the mutex is locked. Um, and that's due to, uh, due to the type system and the way that that particular library is implemented. Um, and so that's sort of, to me, the like reliability and enhancements um, as opposed to other languages. So it's not so much that Rust is doing something fundamentally new. It's that it's disallowing you from doing things that are wrong about that approach. How would you read the files then? So you would uh, log the, the common data structure in which you aggregate the results with this mutex, right? Yeah, so you would then maybe like one one path would be to then have another, the final, you know, combined data structure. It is also under mutex. And so what can happen is that each of these two worker threads would like grab some data out of the file and then release, you know, the file lock and then do their processing and then acquire the lock for the uh, thing that you're writing it into and then write the data into it and then drop that lock. And that, you know, would work that way. You do also have the option, um, like another thing, you can do the sort of uh, CPS, the continuation passing style, the, the channels approach is also totally valid. So if you don't want to, like channels are implemented with mutexes under the hood, but you could also, if you wanted to say, 
make a thread that has the uh, you know the final data structure in it, and then have cha- have a channel you'd be able to send information down, and then each file, uh, each worker thread would then send its results on this channel to the you know thread holding the data structure. Um, you know, and that's also completely doable as well in Rust. We sort of give you these options of like if you want to use channels and do that style of concurrency, or if you want to manually do the mutexy uh, stuff. And you also don't have to just use a mutex. I only pointed out because it's the most popular. You can use any sort of concurrency data structure that you know provides this kind of guarantee. The mutex is just the most straightforward and basic one, so it's the one I always reach to in my examples. Mm-hmm. So we have uh, mutexes and uh, other blocking uh, primitives. Do we have anything non-blocking? Uh, so by default, the way that we've been doing stuff in Rust is largely blocking. And the reason for this is that the language is still really young. I mean, it's old and young at the same time. Uh, Rust is under development for eight years and has only been 1.0 for half a year now. So, so we have this situation where, uh, we have a lot of experience writing code with this stuff, but, you know, any newish language always needs to have more libraries. So we decided to focus on doing blocking well and then working on non-blocking afterwards as opposed to trying to do both poorly. Um, and so people have implemented non-blocking solutions for I.O. specifically um, but, and all sorts of other data structures and things um, externally. And uh, we spent a lot of time and effort. Um, Mozilla invested literally by paying money to develop this package manager called Cargo. And so, um, and we also designed the language in such a way that the guarantees that the language makes are not special to the mutex type. So, mm-hmm. for example, um, it's the type system itself that provides these guarantees, not the particular library. So, if you were to write, you know, if I wanted to make a better mutex for some reason, Steve Mutex, um, it would have the same safety guarantees that the official standard library mutex has because the safety comes from the type system, not from like special casing mutexes. Um, so with this like really strong package manager, uh, it's not a big deal to have these things implemented outside of the standard library at first and then only bring them in when they are like truly battle tested and we decide that they, we want to support this particular implementation forever. Um, so there's also that kind of distinction that's important too. Like Rust itself is like a very anti batteries included. We, we include almost nothing in the standard library. Um, and that's because of this ability for the, the package ecosystem is just like so nice to use that there's not a significant overhead to using something that's not in the standard library. That's very interesting. And how how would you implement your own mutex? Does type system have anything like hooks or like how do you inform type type system yeah. about the usage? So there specifically in this case, um, there is a trait. Uh, so Rust is called traits. They're... From a theory perspective, they're similar to type classes in Haskell, but they also share resemblance to things like interfaces in Java or, uh, you know, to some degree, like uh, modules in Ruby or some modules are implemented this way. But sort of the idea is that a trait is a collection of methods. And then when you implement a trait for a type, it gives those methods to that type. So you could say, like, the two-string trait is an example. It has one method, two-string and it returns a string from whatever type implements this thing. And so then <clears throat> I can implement two string on my data structure. Now, when I'm writing a function, um, I have to say, if I'm writing a generic function, 
I can say this function takes any type that implements the two-string trait. Um, the computer science term for this is called bounded polymorphism. Um, and the, basically the idea is just, yeah, you can take any type that implements this particular interface. So Rust has these two interfaces uh, called send and sync. And they have no methods, which is kind of funny. Um, so it's an interface with no methods. And what this interface says is for send, it says this type is okay to send to another thread, uh, from one, pass one, from one thread to another. And sync says it's okay to access this type from multiple threads. So what would happen is you would write your mutex using your atomic stuff or whatever. And then you would implement the send and or sync traits for that mutex. Uh, and so you inform the type system of these properties, like by that sort of fashion. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in this case, uh, you know, a mutex is, uh, you know, would able to, I always get them backwards when I think about like which one implements which, but, uh, you know, so it would be like able to be accessed, um, from, from multiple threads. And the way that you would deal with the mutability aspect is that, so you say that the mutex holds whatever kind of data it holds, but the only way to access the data is through a lock method. And this lock method returns a mutable reference to the data that the mutex is holding. But the only way to acquire that reference is to use this lock method. And that lock method would be where you would put in the synchronization aspects of like acquiring the lock and then passing out the data. And then finally, there's a hook called drop for when it goes out of scope. So that in the, in the drop implementation, you would say, okay, now we can release the mutex. So sort of this pair of like on construction and on deletion, you know, implement these hooks combined with this trait system. And that is used by type system to actually uh, analyze the code. Yep. So the, the, the drop trait is not really specifically used by the type system, but the, the traits in general are. So it knows, so for example, the standard library interface to spin up a new thread has a, a bound on it that says you can only use stuff inside the new thread that has that send trait. So it like, it must be able to be shareable across threads for you to use it, uh, or to be sent to a new thread to be able to use it. Um, and so that's, that's kind of what provides the guarantee. <clears throat> and again, because you can implement all this stuff outside of the standard library, uh, people have actually implemented their own alternate implementations of threading. So uh, Rust's Rust standard library uses operating system threads by default. We don't do green threading um, because green threading requires a runtime yeah. and we don't want to have a runtime because we're trying to be as low level as possible. So people have actually implemented green threading on top of Rust and then used these same things that way um, as well. So what's what's really interesting about low-level languages is that like normally the idea that you could implement your own version of threading is like kind of silly. So you're used to be able to stuck with whatever implementation the language gives you, but Rust offers this really really amount like strong amount of flexibility due to its low-level nature. Uh, threading is like a standard library concern, not really a language concern. The only thing that the language knows about concurrency is this idea of the send and sync traits. Uh, it doesn't actually know about threads specifically. Um, and so that's kind of like another interesting wrinkle, but is what enables these sort of powerful abstractions to be developed by other people. Makes sense. And uh, are there any high-level uh, concurrency structures 
for like thread pools and uh, you know for for more advanced stuff yeah so that's that is also um thread pools specifically are a thing that people have um already implemented and you can just say like you know here's some closures please run these closures uh you know in these in these new threads in a pool um that's like a very well supported and, and well known um external package there's a, a couple of them actually um but you know uh, you can sort of pick and choose which specific ones matter um, for your needs. And what does it compile to? Um, if if there there is no runtime, for example, if you are talking about Mutex, mm-hmm. uh, how does this magic happen of releasing the Mutex whenever variable goes out of scope? Yeah, so Rust compiles to assembly. So you get a native binary um, on whatever platform that you're using. And so the compiler uh, sort of, when it's doing its code generation it inserts those kind of calls um, into the outputted code. So like, you know, a destructor, for example, is just a function that runs at the end of a scope. So instead of it being based dynamically on like detecting when the thing goes out of scope, it's much more like at the end of the block, the Rust compiler inserts a call to the destructor. Mm. And so it's like in the, the outputted binary itself. There's no runtime detection of that stuff. It's like a compile time code generation kind of feature. Mm-hmm. Hmm. And how do we find this approach to concurrency compared to whatever there is in Ruby, for example, or in JavaScript? Yeah. So to me, the biggest difference between the two is that many errors end up being at compiled time. Because the type system is the feature that we're leveraging to get these safety guarantees, that means that if you use the concurrent structure wrong, your code will not compile. And so I find that to be uh, significantly better, even if like, you know, so let's say, and this is kind of true in a sense, let's say that Rust does not provide any structures that are actually like better. Like, you know, a mutex is a very standard data structure. You can't really get a better or worse implementation of the core concept of a mutex. But what you can do is provide a better interface. And so to me, it's not so much that like Rust's mutexes are better because they are more efficient or something. It's more like the interface is a compile time one, and that's very, very useful. So I, you know, my, I mentioned Rescue earlier. Uh, my project in Ruby, Rescue, this job queue, uh, it uses process-based concurrency. And so when you need a new worker job, uh, it spins up a new process and then executes your code in it. And there is, a t- I just did issue triage last night, so this is very big on my mind. But there's a number of bugs that people have filed against this library that are sort of like, hey, I'm getting this weird, mysterious crash. It only happens when my app is in production and when I have 75 active workers and I restart them all at once. And so, like, that's a concurrency bug, but because Ruby does not even... Ruby is technically compiled, but this is not really about Ruby internal. This is not a Ruby internals podcast, so whatever. Ruby is like a dynamic language and not having a static type system means that now to reproduce that bug, I need to reproduce this exact set of circumstances with the code that they're writing and the library and like spin up 75 instances of this thing. Whereas in Rust, hopefully uh, that would be whatever error caused that problem would have been at compile time. And I wouldn't have even been able to introduce the bug in the first place. Um, And this is sort of a, one of the core trade-offs that Rust makes, which makes it a little hard for beginners and it's a little difficult to get into, but I think that what is going to lead to seriously significantly more maintainable code in the long run is that by doing so much at compile time, 
Um, Rust is, first of all, able to be incredibly efficient because all of these things have no runtime overhead. But secondly, w- when your code doesn't compile, if it doesn't work, that means that you have to fix all your problems up front, which means that the end software should be significantly more reliable. So the problem here is that your code has to be right. So as a beginner, when you're learning, uh, there can be a struggle to get started because the compiler is always yelling at you about what you've done wrong. And as a newbie, you may not have enough information or context to know how to fix the problem, right? So this is kind of the trade-off, one of the big trade-offs between like a super dynamic, uh, you know, interpreted language with no static type system versus a very strong type system, heavily compiled um, language is that, you know, in Ruby, I can write some stuff and it will like probably mostly work, but getting you over from like mostly working to 100% working can be very, very difficult. In Rust, I have to get it perfectly right. Uh, and of course, not perfectly. Obviously, Rust software can have bugs. I'm not claiming that Rust will give you bug-free code, but it will point out a significant number of bugs before it even lets you run the final program. And so you have to address these kinds of issues up front. So that's sort of a, I'm investing in... So like <clears throat> another way to look at this is is like in Ruby... I spend a very small amount of time getting my code up and running, but then I spend a while debugging it. And in Rust, I spend a while getting my program to run, but then there's no debugging time. Like I've programmed in Rust, uh, you know, a lot full time for the last two years, but part time for like a year before that. Uh, and I have, I think I used a debugger once. <laughs> Like it just it just doesn't actually need a debugger in the same way that I would need a debugger if I was working in C or in Ruby. I sort of prefer unit tests more than like factually debugging things, but that's for a number of different reasons. Um, I still use a debugger in Ruby quite often um, compared to Rust, where I basically don't don't need to debug things. Um, obviously, sometimes you do, but like the vast majority of the time, it's not a problem. Have you noticed any specific type of errors that is uh, not caught by, by compiler? So what the sort of the perennial trade-off of type systems is how much information can you put in a type system without making it so hard to use that programmers don't want to use it? So for example, um, Rust does not, like, if you have an array and you have five elements in that array, accessing the sixth element is an error. Uh, Rust cannot currently help you with that problem at all. Um, helping that problem is like a, that, that problem specifically is kind of a, let's say solved is a little strong, but semi-solved uh, in the computer science, like type theory sense with languages like Idris that use this, this feature called dependent types. And so Idris can prove at compile time that you never pass the value six to an array that has five elements. But in order to do that, requires a significant amount of annotations and working with the type system um, in a way that is alien to a lot of programmers. And so we don't use those kinds of things in Rust. And so there are still these kinds of problems that occasionally, you know, you'll have to deal with. So that's, to me, that's the most common one is array out of bounds. Um, <clears throat> unlike in a language like C, array out of bounds um, causes a panic in Rust. So we do check that the number is valid, but it is a runtime check. However, LVM is sometimes able to optimize those checks away when it knows that they're safe. Um, and so you don't always pay the cost of them, but it is kind of a, a runtime thing that you might have to solve. So that's sort of the, the, that's probably the most common one, I guess I would say. I still don't run into it super often, but it's like 
Um, that's the, the easiest to explain sort of problem that Rust does not help you solve. Um, and for, I wish that it could solve all problems because then it would just be an AI I could tell to write programs and it would do them perfectly, right? <laughs> Unfortunately, we as programmers still have to actually write the code and humans are fallible, so there, there will be bugs. Um, yeah. yeah. And just that's fun. Hopefully a lot less of them. That's the key. The key is how many bugs can you eliminate up front? Right. What do you think is the future of concurrent programming and Rust specifically? So the future with Rust is continuing to develop how much of this stuff that we can prevent at compile time. So um, as sort of an example, um, we have uh, two really interesting libraries in Rust that are dealing with concurrency that are kind of sort of unique-ish to Rust. Um, one of them is this idea of scoped threads. So there's this package called Crossbeam, and it implements this idea called scoped threads. And what scoped threads are, um, it's a little easier when you have actual code, but I'll try to describe it in words. Um, if, you have, if you have, say, an array, and it's allocated on the stack, and you call a thread that is going to do some parallel processing on this array. Say you're going to spin up 10 threads, uh, and then you wait for all those threads to finish before you exit the program. You can know that that array will always be valid for the entire life of those threads. Um, but you can only know that sort of like as a programmer thinking about the problem, you're like, I, I know that this thread is going to stop executing because I specifically called join on the thread before this function is over. So I know that that's safe. And so, a sort of naive implementation and one using the Rust standard library only would still require you to have that overhead of the mutex and deal with all that stuff because it doesn't know that you're calling join on those threads. But a scoped thread gives you the ability to guarantee that you're calling join within a particular like time frame. And so you can actually um, have those threads have mutable access to the parent stack frame um, and we know that it's safe. And so you can actually, in that case, eliminate the overhead of the mutex entirely because the type system is fully providing all of the guarantees, not just like, did you acquire the lock, but like, this is completely a valid operation. Um, <clears throat> and so this is sort of this, this principle of like leveraging the type system to eliminate runtime checks. And so I think that it's a really exciting way that you can do something that would be terribly, terribly dangerous in other languages, but we can guarantee is safe. Um, and so that's really cool. The other library that's really interesting, um, specifically in Rust, and I'd like to see more development on this front, is called Rayon. And what Rayon does is it gives you the ability to just say, uh, please execute this code in parallel, and then it just figures out how to do that automatically for you. So the sort of the demo that the author of Rayon gives is kind of like uh, iterating over an array and adding one to every element. And so you can just say, like, please iterate in parallel for me, thanks. And then it will just do it. And it's just magic and it just works. Um, and so that's another sort of library that I'm excited about the potential for in the future is kind of letting computer worry about how to parallelize things and not needing to do it manually yourself. Sounds great. Uh, how do you think people can find you and reach you on the internet if they have any questions? Yeah, anyone should feel free to reach out to me with any questions about any of this stuff. Um, I try to pride myself on being very accessible, so I'll give you a number of different ways. Uh, one way for easy questions is just to tweet at me. Uh, I use my name, Steve Klabnik, on Twitter. Uh, and so that's a, that's a viable way of getting a hold of me. I spend far too much time on Twitter. 
another is that I'm currently and always available on IRC, uh, both on Mozilla's IRC and on Freenode. Uh, and so you can ping me there. Same thing, Steve Klabnik on there. Or, uh, you know, email. Uh, sometimes email is the best way for things. So steve at steveklabnik.com is my email address. And I would be more than happy to answer anyone's questions about this stuff. Okay. Thank you. Thank you so much for doing this. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. It was a good time. Hi, this is Andre again. I just wanted to remind you that you can find the link to the new book by Steve and Carol Nichols, The Rust Programming Language, in the show notes. The show notes are on our website, codepodcast.com. If you would like to support the show, you can do so by going to codepodcast.com slash Patreon. Thank you so much for listening. We'll hear each other soon.